Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? I'm Kat, founder of Ritual. We're making traceability the new standard for the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I couldn't find a multivitamin I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested, and clean label project certified. Oh, and our vitamin D3? It comes from sustainably harvested lichen from England, not sheep. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Buddy, Jacob Daniel here. This is the Daniel Three Podcast. Uh, thanks for tuning in. So this is a pre-recorded stream, um, so I won't be able to interact with you live in the comments. Uh, but you know, sometimes episodes like this make more sense to do it this way um, when they're solo and by myself. So uh, anyway, we'll get started with the usual, even though it's not a live stream. Um, I just you know I have to do the basic housekeeping just because uh, I don't know I'm a creature of habit. I guess. Of course, we have Rabbit Eye Blueberry Wine. If Jesus was walking the earth today and turning water into wine, it would be Rabbit Eye Blueberry Wine. Check it out at rabbiteyewine.com. Support Libertarian Small Business, Will Bell, a fellow Libertarian Mises Caucus member down in Georgia. Um, Other than that, uh, I have a scheduled episode that I guess I will plug here. Uh, So this episode, I'm recording this Sunday night on the 8th. Uh, This will air tomorrow, the 9th. Um, So if you're watching this on the 9th uh, of May 2022, (laughs) then uh, Wednesday, May 11th, I'm having Carrie Baldwin back on the show. That'll be, I don't know, it's going to be late. That's going to be like 9.30 or 10 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. And uh, Carrie's been on the show twice before. And uh, Carrie's well known for uh, doing a debate with Walter Block on abortion at the Soho Forum and uh, being one of the more premier libertarian pro-life voices in the movement, as well as a fellow Christian libertarian, uh, actually a fellow reformed Christian uh, libertarian uh, podcaster and uh, and voice in our movement. And so we're going to have a conversation, kind of go a bit deeper than we have in the past uh, on the topic of abortion, uh, Roe versus Wade and all that, and, and sort of the idea of uh, she, she, uh, she's mentioned on her show and in a couple of podcasts that uh, she's appeared on recently, um, the idea of restorative justice and um, so we're going to get into those topics and it's going to be a good conversation. 
uh, an important one because this is a topic that I think, uh, you know, I've talked about on my show, but I don't think we've done it due justice. And this is, you know, as as good a time as any to do that. so tonight, this is going to be, uh, uh, I'm saying tonight, you know, it's weird. It's weird doing this, not live. I'm so used to doing live streams now that, you know, the show started out as nothing but pre-recorded streams for the longest time. And uh, and then uh, I switched to the live stream format and, uh, you know, we hit the ground running with that for so long that uh, this is, it, it's still weird. I'm still used to seeing people in the comments. Um, so uh let's see this is episode 74 this is part two in the uh series that uh i've started where i do uh the series is called austrian economics in the bible uh and so we're kind of going into different scriptures different passages or different just uh different topics that pertain to you know where we can find correlations or direct teachings or sort of like proofs of uh, you know, Austrian economics or, you know, Austrian uh, libertarianism or, you know, uh, Christian anarchism uh, within the Bible, kind of what the series is going to be focused on. Um, and so tonight we're going to top uh, tackle uh, the render unto Caesar passage because there is a lot that can be dived into on this topic. And uh, I got a lot of notes here, um, and and this is going to be a little bit, you know, th- this is one of those episodes where I have a, a like stuff written down ahead of time, but um, you know, my style is not to just read from an outline, so I'm going to attempt to somewhat kind of refer to my notes, but then sort of speak extemporaneously um, as we go along. So to start with, you know, the the the. The passage uh, under, under Caesar, render unto Caesar, which I guess is uh, what is that? Uh, Matthew. I have it written down here, but not at the top. Here we go. Matthew chapter twenty-two. Um, you know, it's a very uh, you know, along with Romans thirteen. You know, it's one of those passages that are often commonly cited to sort of support the idea that Christians are su- supposed to submit to the state. Uh, render unto Caesar being more about taxes and, you know, uh, that Christians should pay their taxes. And, uh, you know, uh, so I guess we'll, you know, to start out, you know, is this passage about taxes and about how we should pay taxes? And, you know, just broadly speaking, does the Bible tell us as Christians that we are supposed to pay our taxes? And, you know, I want to be you know, clear and and honest. I, I, you know, one of the things that I always strive to do is to not do eisegesis. So eisegesis is where, so let me contrast it with uh, its opposite, uh, which would be exegesis. You know, exegesis is where we read the text and we derive the truth um, and the meaning from the text itself and what the text is saying. Whereas, you know, eisegesis would be we're taking things outside the Bible and we are sort of reading, reading them into the Bible or sort of like reading the Bible through a particular, uh, you know, ideological or historical um, lens and, and sort of trying to pigeonhole the Bible into a certain uh, ideologue. And, and this is, you know, this is a problem with any, I mean, this is the danger that you're going to run into anytime you're reading scripture. Um, doesn't you know? Doesn't matter if you were a libertarian such as myself, or if you were a Republican or a Democrat, a socialist. Um, if you were uh, an atheist, if you were uh, somebody who you know, the, and all the different varying theological schools within Christianity, whether you were a Catholic or a Calvinist, or you know, <laughs> what have you, we we all are going to have to do our best to leave our biases at the table and try to let scripture speak for itself. Um, and that's a tough thing to do, but you know, I'm not, I'm not going to claim to do it perfectly, but I'm going to, you know, I, w- I want to make sure I'm, I'm uh, aware of those pitfalls and doing my best to avoid them. Um, so on the topic, you know, are Christians supposed to pay taxes? Well, you know, that answer is actually a bit more complicated than just like a simple yes or no. 
Now, and that's not to say that it's complicated because the Bible isn't clear or that I, you know, and, and obviously, I mean, to, to sort of jump ahead here, I don't think that the Bible supports taxation. Um, but at the same time, I'm not trying to bend the Bible towards that perspective either. So, you know, I remember getting into a Twitter discussion the other day uh, with with somebody and, you know, sometimes you get this from atheists who, well, the Bible, you know, clearly can't be correct or, and, and this person's accusation was actually very specific. It was, well, you know, clearly the Bible can't be preaching, you know, uh, libertarianism or anarchism because if it did, you wouldn't have to do a podcast on it and, and do all this uh, trying to interpret and trying to explain it. Uh, you know, the Bible should just, you know, clearly say what it says, um, which I sort of responded a little bit flippantly. But I, I was just like that to me just shows a, a lack of, you know, honest, legitimate wrestling with the texts and, and a sort of, you know, historical and, and theological understanding of what the Bible is. Because um, the Bible, you know, except in very rare cases, you know, it's not this list of do's and don'ts. Um, you know, the, the Bible is God's word, but God doesn't just, uh, you know, it's not like you're reading a textbook. You know, rather God speaks through, well, just as he speaks today, he speaks through and works through people. And, uh, you know, the Bible, although it's God's word, God is speaking through uh, the words and actions of other people. And so, and, and this isn't, you know, the Bible is not just one book. The Bible is a collection of, of many different, you know, uh, books that are all written in different times and, and also have different, you know, meanings. And, and you know, to the book of the Psalms is different from uh, the book of Malachi, which is different from the book of Judges, which is vastly different from, from the Gospels, which is, you know, different than the epistles. And these are all, you know, part of what we would canonically call God's word. But that doesn't mean that each book can be approached, uh, you know, the same way, um, other than just approaching it as God's word. We have to, you know, then take into account the historical context and uh, and and sort of what the the author, you know, what was the author saying and who was he speaking to? Um, th these are all important questions that we have to ask when we're reading scripture. But but primarily that I guess the thing I want to hone in on is that we have to read scripture, understanding that the you know there's always something there that's speaking to the people in the present, but then there's also you know archetypical or uh, you know deep theological truths that we can derive from the stories themselves. Sometimes those lessons are explicitly stated, and sometimes they're a bit more implicitly. Uh, present um so to start out i guess i want to when it comes to this question of paying taxes and you know how we deal with the government in in general um i, I want to start out with you know the theme of of bearing our cross and you know there's this idea that um and i, I remember jordan peterson talking about this a lot in his work you know, the idea that, that you're supposed to bear your cross and, and you bear your suffering and you do it uh, nobly is, is, is sort of the idea or the, uh, the, the archetype or one of many archetypes that Jesus embodied, um, which is true. But it's also not, not unique uh, only to Jesus because this has happened uh, to many people throughout the, the Bible narrative, whether it's Joseph, whether it's uh, uh Peter, whether it's, you know, the, the passages talking to even, even those who are slaves and telling them to admonish and serve their masters well. Um, and then this, you know, I think it applies to those, you know, those passages that are talking about submission uh, to those in authority and paying taxes. Um, you know, I think, you know, the story of Jesus is obviously an obvious one to point to, but I think, you know, the story of Jesus is as much about sort of like the archetype of how we can overcome suffering, um, but but also is about how we can, you know, I mean, it, it is the gospel message, and that sort of rings true throughout. 
um, a story that I think is a bit maybe clear or more useful in this context for demonstrating what I'm talking about is the story of Joseph. And just, you know, Joseph was somebody who had every reason to complain and be angry with God about the many things that were happening to him, whether it was being sold into slavery wrongly by his brothers or uh, whether it was being wrongfully accused by uh, Potiphar's wife. Um, you know, there, there was, there were, there were many hardships that Joseph had to endure. Um, but every position that Joseph found himself in, whether it was being a slave or whether it was being in, in, in prison, uh, he excelled and sort of uh, earned favor from those, you know, earned the favor, earned the trust of those around him and was able to transcend his suffering through this sort of, you know, just as Jesus did, sort of like by that that noble bearing of 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 the burden uh, or the cross that 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 uh, that he was given, um, you know, and obviously in many ways the story of Joseph is, uh, you know, a, as as much as the of the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of of what the the gospel message is. So, um. And I, I want to be clear here. Then, this this one theme about bearing our cross and about um, what we do in the face of hardship, you know, the the message that we we see from these stories, you know, this speaks to how we overcome oppression and evil and hardship. But what we need to be careful of, and what I think sometimes. Uh, the trap that that people fall into when they're reading a passage, um, you know, such as the the render unto Caesar or Romans thirteen or, or anything else, is that although yes, we are supposed to like Jesus, like Joseph, um, like like many of us, you know, we're I mean, like many of the people in the Bible, we are supposed to, uh, you know, bear our suffering nobly and to instead of becoming bitter to continue to honor god with our actions and our and our speech but this is about overcoming those uh hardships and the oppression and the message is not prescribing those things that those people are going through as moral goods or as being normative to god's moral decrees so being told to admonish your slave master and to serve him well is not a moral is not god um saying slavery is part of his moral decree um you know any more than being uh you know like god will use sometimes the death of somebody for good um but but that does not make murder good um you know and in that same light taxation uh, can be something that we are sometimes called to as Christians to submit to, but that does not make taxation good. Um, and this is sort of the idea of like, you know, the different wills or the different decrees of God. And although there are many, the the two that I think make the most sense to focus on here are the moral decree and his sovereign decree. Um, and, you know, God is, you know, often talks about his ability to, you know, and the story of Joseph again being a great example of this, and obviously the uh, the story of the cross being another to take what men intend for evil, and and is evil actually. You know, like you know his his brothers selling the brothers selling Joseph into slavery was evil. <laughs> Joseph being thrown in jail for crimes he didn't commit was evil. Uh, Jesus being you know crucified on a cross. And betrayed by by Judas and being abandoned by his uh, apostles. I mean, you know, this is all evil. Um, but God is able to take those evil actions, and He is able to, through His sovereign will, um, work out a a greater good. But but this is something that God is uniquely positioned to do from His you know His sovereign power and as the author of creation. Um, but never does when God is sovereignly sovereignly sitting over the actions of evil men, is he ordaining those actions and 
prescribing them as normative to his moral decree. Um, there are many things that God decrees in a moral sense to be good and bad, but that people will, you know, people will break his moral decree in terms of, you know, it's just basically what sin is, is a violation of God's um, moral decree. Um, you know, some passages I have written down here, you know, there's a Daniel 4.25, all of the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? So that's an example of his sovereign decree. Um, then you have passages like Leviticus 19.2, which are then later echoed by Jesus, um, you know, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy, which is like Jesus saying, you, you know, you must be perfect as my father in heaven is perfect. Um, and I think I've talked about this in the show before, but Romans 13 is, is obviously another example of this, this sort of dichotomy needing to, to come into play where there is, you know, moral and sovereign decrees. And although God can sovereignly sit over evil and we can be sometimes called to uh, submit to the actions of oppression uh, of oppressors and evil men, uh, we do so in the same vein as Joseph or Jesus, and that does not mean that God is morally prescribing the those evil actions as normative or being part of his moral ordinance in terms of how we should strive to live as individuals and how we should strive to influence society in terms of, you know, what, what we're trying to create in our communities. Um, so that, th that I think is an important theme here to, to, to keep in mind, which is even if uh, there is some kind of part here in these passages where we are sub supposed to, you know, cause I think as Christians, we, should not fall into the violent revolution. We should not fall into, you know, what was what was the sin of Peter in the garden, right? I've talked about this a few times. Because uh, Peter cut off the ear of the high priest, and then Jesus stopped him and said, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. Shall I not take the cup that my father has prepared for me? And, you know, was Peter sort of, you know, maybe in a, certain sense justified in trying to defend Jesus? Well, well, maybe, but at the same time, uh, Peter was acting not by faith, but rather by trying to control things and, and not entrusting Jesus and his sovereignty and in the fact that Jesus had prophesied that this was going to happen, but rather Peter was trying to control things himself and not put, put his trust in, in, uh, in God, but rather to put his trust in in the sword and in might and in using using uh, violence. Um, and while I wouldn't call myself a, you know, total pacifist or whatever you want to, you know, label that, I don't want to get too deep into that, but I do think that in general, uh, we as Christians sh should be closer to the example of Joseph and Jesus than we should be of, you know, being... Uh, you know, eager or quick to fall into uh, advocating for any sort of uh, violent or or uh, ag aggressive solutions to the problems that we face. Uh, so that being said, I think that's an important first, you know, sort of theme to derive from, from these texts, um, is that these things could be uh, prescribed as things we submit to, but that doesn't mean that they're good. Second, you know, I'm going to draw here from an article that I would recommend reading. This is from the Macy's Institute uh, by Jeff Barr uh, called Render Unto Caesar a Most Misunderstood New Testament Passage, um, which was published in 2018. Um, and there's an important historical context to uh, I mean, the entire gospel, but uh, but that's also especially relevant to um, the passage in, in Matthew 22. So I'm going to read this excerpt from the, the, the um, 
the Jeff Barr article on on Mises.org, which I again highly recommend doing a reading of because you know certainly uh, there's a lot there that that I agree with and that I'm I'm sort of uh, that's influencing my views and and what I'm uh, you know presenting here today, especially the historical context. So the historical setting, the undercurrent of tax revolt in six A.D. Roman occupiers of Palestine imposed a census tax on the Jewish people. The tribute was not well received, and by 17 AD, uh, Tacitus reports in Book 242 of the uh, the Annals, um, the provinces too of Syria and Judea, exhausted by their burdens, implored a reduction of tribute. Tribute being uh, essentially tax in this context, which I'll get into a little bit later. A tax revolt led by Judas the Galilean soon ensued, and Judas taught that taxation was no better than an introduction to slavery. And he and his followers had an inviolable attachment to liberty, recognizing God alone as king and ruler of Israel. Which, by the way, this is sort of why when Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors in the New Testament, they're referred to in such a, you know, it's Jesus was hanging out with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. This is kind of why the tax collectors, you know, you can see here uh, the historical context uh, providing some explanation for why uh, tax collectors were viewed so negatively. Uh, the Romans brutally combated uh, the uprising for decades. Two of Judas's sons were crucified in 46 AD, and a third was an early leader of the 66 AD Jewish revolt. Thus, payment of the tribute conveniently encapsulated the deeper philosophical, political, and theological issue. Either God and his divine laws were supreme, supreme, or the Roman emperor and his pagan laws were supreme. This undercurrent of tax revolt flowed through Judea through Jesus' ministry. All three synoptic gospels place the episode immediately after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which throngs of people proclaimed him king, as St. Matthew states, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken and asked, Who is this? And the crowd replied, This is Jesus, the prophet, the Nazareth in Galilee. All three agree that this scene takes place near the celebration of the Passover, one of the holiest of Jewish feast days. Passover commemorates God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery and also celebrates the divine restoration of the Israelites to the land of Israel, land then occupied by the Romans. Jewish pilgrims from throughout Judea would have been streaming into Jerusalem to fulfill their periodic religious duties at the temple. Because of the mass of pilgrims, the Roman uh, procurator of Judea, Pontius Pilate, had also temporarily taken up residence in Jerusalem along with a multitude of troops so as to suppress any religious violence. In her work, Pontius Pilate, the biography of an invented man, Anne Rowe described Pilate as the emperor's chief soldier, chief magistrate, head of the judicial system, and above all, the chief tax collector. Uh, in book 30, it's in Roman numerals, uh, book one, how many X is there? One, two, three. In book 38, on the embassy to Gaius, uh, Filio has depicted Pilate as cruel, exceedingly angry, and a man of most ferocious passions who had a habit of insulting people and murdering them untried and uncondemned with the most grievous inhumanity. Just few years prior to Jesus' ministry, the image of Caesar nearly precipitated uh, an insurrection in Jerusalem when Pilate, by cover of night, uh, surreptitiously erected effigies of the emperor and the 
fortress Antonia adjoining the Jewish temple. Jewish law forbade both the creation of graven images in their introduction into the holy city of Jerusalem. Pilate averted a bloodbath only by removing the images. In short, Jerusalem would have been a hotbed of political and religious fervor, and it is against this background that the tribute episode unfolded. And that article, um, I didn't include the quotation here, but also goes into details about how the currency itself was, uh, you know, quite idolatrous, and it, it it essentially, you know, presented Caesar as this very divine uh, figure, um, and and in fact, the inscription on the coins referred to Caesar as basically being divine or a a son of God, and and so, you know, it was, you know, the. <laughs> The undertone of this passage is that, uh, you know, there was very much a strong uh, biblical Jewish majority opinion that, you know, Caesar was a false god, an idol, and that, you know, the Jews were living in sort of, you know, occupied by this foreign power that was, you know, constantly you know, you could say like triggering them or or um, inciting them to anger and almost violence because of the the blasphemy that they were subjecting the Jewish people to. Um, and again, I want to highlight here. You know, this is an important part too. In the Greek, there is no there's no different words for taxes or tributes or duties. Um, the word is uh, for us. Um, or Foros, I forget, I forget exactly how to pronounce it. Um, you know, I can't, I can't spell it because it's in Greek, but, uh, but, but it's basically like the, the, the English pronunciation is like typed out as F O R U S or P H O U, uh, P H O R U S. Um, so it's like for us. Um, and so, uh, I thought I'd pull it up here. Um, when I went on to the, uh, English to Greek dictionary online, uh, the word is defined as, you know, something given or done as an expression of esteem. That's the first definition. The second definition, payment by one nation for protection by another. Keep that in mind. That's an important definition I'm going to come back to. Three, and I swear I did not make this up. Okay? <laughs> this is not some weird website. This is not some libertarian think tank. This is literally, and I, I should, I should, um, uh, I don't know. I, I'm almost tempted to live here, go up and pull up the website again. But seriously, if you just go to like English to Greek dictionary, um, one of the top results and look up the word, the Greek word for us, uh, this is what they said. Definition number three is payment extorted by gangsters on threat of violence. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. 
kind of said the quiet part out loud there, but okay. <laughs> uh, four testimonial or five praise. So you can see this word is sort of confusing. <laughs> because it, it does not, you know, it's used in so many different in so many different meanings. Um, and actually, so one of the roots of this word was that in ancient Greece, uh, for us was the, the name um, for the membership dues paid to Athens by the members of the uh, Delian League, which was formed to offer protection from the Persian forces, uh, which could be used to pay for military equipment uh, uh, or, or just any other things they needed the, the funds to do. And, and there was some, this is, that's a whole different historical, uh, you know, ra rabbit trail to go down. But that word is used throughout the New Testament in different contexts. Sometimes it's used about, you know, if you're trying to pay respect to somebody, and sometimes it's used about paying tribute to somebody. But, you know, again, it's not always um, used in the context of what we would today consider taxation, because, you know, not all so like think about like a toll road right like you know i think in a libertarian society there would be roads that you'd have to pay a toll to use and we can certainly understand the idea of different services um per, you know coming with some kind of quote-unquote tax or a toll on them but that would be free to opt in or opt out of and that that wouldn't be inherently uh coercive or extortion but then they can be as well so there's a bit of a, you know, this word here is sort of striking at an issue here, which I think is important too, which is, you know, why are we against, as libertarians, why are we against taxation? Is it because, you know, like what's the meme? Uh, you know, who would build the roads? And then from that you get, you know, why are you libertarian? It's like, well, because I hate roads. <laughs> it's like, well, as libertarians, we're not against the things that taxes pay for, like right? Like, we, we, I mean, because, and you don't need taxes in a sense. Like, like the government isn't what creates the these these things. The government taxes and then pays for people to build roads or to build infrastructure, um, you know, or to pay for judges or, uh, you know, the state security forces called you know uh, uh, police or w whatever you know and as libertarians when we talk about our sort of you know more idyllic uh, or, or ideal libertarian societies whether they're minarchist or obviously i prefer more of a anarcho-capitalist polycentric legal order we're not advocating for like the abolition or the destruction of these uh these these services but rather we're 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 we want to move them into a a sphere where the funding mechanism is is not violent and, and coercive and then two we're trying to move them into a sphere where we think market forces would act upon them to produce better uh products and services over over time by opening them up to competition and I don't know. That just kind of seems to be at play here. And in, in, there's like a corollary or a parallel in this definition where it's like, you know, are, are we, when we're talking about tributes or taxes being paid to, to do these, you know, services, it's like, again, are we, is, is that a, is that the Bible condoning all possible forms of funding those services? Or could it possibly be that the, that the Bible in passages like Romans 13, I would argue are advocating for the creation of government services, but but that that doesn't necessarily necessitate that the creation of these government forces would be acceptable or you know biblically normative um, in every possible fashion. That there are good and bad and better or or worse ways to go about doing this. Um. So. With all that framing out of the way, let's let's dive into the text now. Finally, um, so uh, we've established who's speaking. We've established the historical context. We're now ready to go into the text and 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 read it. So this is Matthew twenty-two, starting in verse fifteen. Um, then the Pharisees, going 
consulted among themselves how to ensnare him, him being Jesus, in his speech. And they sent to him their disciples with the um, Herodians saying, Master, we know that thou art a true speaker and the uh, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou dost not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what dost thou think? Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their wickedness, said, Why do you tempt me, ye hypocrites? Show me the coin of the tribute. And they offered him a penny, which in Latin is a denarium or a denarius. And Jesus saith to them, Whose image in, in, and inscription is this? And they say to him, Caesar's. Then he saith to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they wondered, and leaving him, went their ways. So let's go through this line by line, right? I mean, it's clearly a trap. <laughs> so, so, so right from the get-go, we know that Jesus is being approached by the Pharisees who hated him. I mean, this is pretty well established in the New Testament. The Pharisees hated him and had been plotting to murder him um, you know, ever since they had heard of him and encountered him. And, I mean, it's, it's pretty famous, all the negative interactions that Jesus had with the Pharisees. These are the people that would eventually kill him. So they're not approaching in good faith. And they, you know, so now we know the historical context of this. So they're asking this question, and they're putting Jesus into a, you know, what they think is a trap. They think he's either going to answer in a way that appeals to the Jews and appeals to the scriptures. Because I think of, like, uh, this is something that uh, the Mises article brings up, too. It's like they're, they're kind of buttering him up a little bit. They're like, you know, give like false, this false flattery at the beginning. Like, oh, you are a great teacher and you don't regard what other men think or say of you. You just pursue the truth. So they're, they're, they're kind of like saying, like, well, you'll say what's true no matter what, no matter what the consequences. So they're trying to get him to either speak what you know is, is going to you know grant him legitimacy as the wise teacher that he's you know proclaiming to be but knowing that this will put him in trouble with the romans because they will be able to pin him as trying to incite religious violence or he will try to find a way to uh say that we should pay to the romans and therefore he will then be discredited to many of his supporters who are uh, supporting him because like one of the reasons that they support him is because even if he wasn't explicitly saying it, he was clearly presenting himself, uh, you know, as, as, as contrary to the Romans. And, and so Jesus responds by just calling it as it is. It's like, you know, uh, you know, you, you hypocrites, you know, <laughs> why is he calling them hypocrites? Right said, show me the coin of tribute. So more historical context here. Uh, these coins were not universally distributed. These coins were mostly distributed by, by those uh, that specifically dealt with the Romans. So let's think about that a little bit. Why, why would Jewish Pharisees have have a Daenerys on them ready to ready to present as Jesus asked for, <laughs> asked for it because you couldn't pay tribute just by any coin I mean think about today like if you pay your taxes right you can't pay your taxes in 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 Bitcoin <laughs> or or in in straight gold no you have to have dollars and when you had to pay tribute it had to be in the the coin of Caesar right so the Jews, by having this coin on them, immediately out themselves as hypocrites because they actually are the corrupt religious leaders who are dealing with the Romans and, and, and taking money from the Romans. And, and there's something here that's just, I, I think, 
to put it bluntly, if you if you deal with the devil, then you deal with the devil. And so what do you, so he's like, listen, if you're going to like who, whose image is on this coin, right? It's like, well, if you're going to deal with the devil, if you're going to what you can't worship two masters, right? So if you're going to worship Satan, then you will owe to Satan, right? <laughs> um, but render to God what is God's. What is Jesus saying there? Well, everything everything belongs to God. And he's pointing to the fact that God is the legitimate ruler and Caesar isn't. This is not about Jesus trying to teach us that it is the most important thing in the world that like, you know, well, we have to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. He's like, no, he's like, you know, Caesar's a false god, you know, a, a false idol. And uh, if you're, if I mean, if you want to bow to him, then yeah, you will owe to him. But if you do that, you're in direct conflict with God's word. And I think beyond that, there's there's a few. So I think one, first and foremost, the problem with uh, the tribute or the taxation going to the state is that it is idolatry. Uh, we we see this in Rome. We see this in our own country. I think. Um, you know, our, our, our currency is, is graven with all these images and you can say that America and, uh, American history is almost mythologized at this point with our, our, our founding fathers and all that, you know, and, uh, I guess there's some good and bad there, but I, I think in, in many ways it's, it's mostly bad. Um, and we, we see this in the, in, in the American church, right? I mean, people, read the Bible with this very Americanized lens. And in in some ways it's like American Christianity and they're, um, you know, they're American Christians and they, they mix their American nationalism with their Christianity, which, you know, is a mistake. That's idolatry. Uh, so, so that's the problem first and foremost is, is um, you know, and and it goes hand in hand with the fact that like again the problem is not the idea of paying for government services right the i no austrian <laughs> no libertarian um, and certainly no principled anarcho capitalist is going to be against paying people what they are owed but coercion and violence are not only at odds with libertarianism they're at odds with God's moral decree. This doesn't mean that God doesn't use the actions of evil men to accomplish a greater good. He does. But he also, you know, what is evil is still evil. What God has declared evil may no man call good. Right? So, you know, the, the people who crucified Jesus, they weren't doing good. It's not good to crucify people. God just used it for good. When Joseph's, when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, that was evil. God just used their evil to accomplish a greater good. Um, there, there's nowhere in the Bible when it's talking about those who would be acting in authority or those who would be acting in the role of, of civil governance where it is described as normative that these people would be given special rights that they can defy the de, de, defy and rebel against the moral decree that God has put upon them. And if anything, I think there's a stronger emphasis that those people are held to God's word even more than we are. If we're going to if we, if it was going to be any kind of special treatment, it would be a bias, not a not a a a favor. Um if you have power, God will hold you even more so responsible for, uh, you know, maintaining moral integrity. And if it is, if theft is wrong, then theft is wrong, whether you have a badge or whether you were an elected politician or whether you're stealing from your local supermarket or whether you're printing currency <laughs> to to devalue people's savings and, and, and money and to cause economic instability. Also things that the Romans did, by the way, 
Um, even though it was gold coins, it was still controlled by the government and it was still uh, done. Um, you can go back and study this and I won't go into here, but you know, there were, there were definitely destructive economic policies that the Romans uh, engaged in. Anytime you have a monopoly over, over currency, even if it is a more um, sound currency than just paper money, um, it's still going to be problematic because it's it's centrally planned and not not through the, it's not operating through the market. But what I guess like the the, the last thing here is what is Caesar owed, right? Because because that's what Jesus says. He says, "Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's." Well, that begs the question: What belongs to Caesar, and what does the Bible say is normative about what is owed? What does the Bible say as far as what is normative about what what belongs to people, and what people can charge for services? I mean, let's think back to the last episode, right? In Matthew twenty, the people, the the the, the workers in the the vineyard, they they weren't able to demand they get paid the same as the others or get paid more than the others. They can only agree, they could only uh, hold to the contract they agreed to as far as what the property owner agreed to pay them. So you're only owed that which you would negotiate for. It's all about consent. And that goes both ways. The property owner can't break contract and either not provide a service or not provide the payment for services rendered, but he's also not, he can't be demanded to pay more than what was agreed to by that contract. So we talked about last episode, the parable of the uh, laborers in the vineyard. There's other passages though, that would speak to what is normative about, uh, about property rights, right? Um, we could go into, so the Romans four, uh, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. There's Jeremiah 22, verse 13. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice and who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. And, and there, there's, there's countless examples of what is normal, what is normative in the Bible is capitalism. It's, it is free trade. It is voluntarism. It is that not the idea that people are owed anything just because of a title or that they can violently extort people to get what they are owed. No, you were owed whatever you agreed to and whatever you, uh, whatever you either homestead yourself or what you work for. Um, you know, the emphasis is on, 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 on labor and the emphasis is on, uh, contract, but, but never is the, never will you find a passage in the Bible where there is a push to make normative the idea that that which you demand by fiat is what you are owed. That flies in the face of God's moral decrees. And so again, we have to separate the governing services from the mechanisms of how those governing services are created, funded, and how they are operated. I mean, I think God ordains, this is, I didn't have this prepared, but it just came to me, like, God ordains the authority of parents over their kids. That does not mean that God ordains over anything that people would do in that relationship. Like, God doesn't approve or declare as normative the idea that parents can beat their their children or, you know, work their children in coal mines or... Um, you know, or or sexually abuse their children, or um, sell their children into slavery, or or uh, malnourish them, or you know what I mean, like uh, charge their children. I mean, there's so many examples I can think of. Um, Carrie Baldwin, who's coming on the show 
uh, Wednesday says it really eloquently. Because God, God's authority is sovereign, human authority is necessarily limited. And God ordains over authority, yes. In Romans 13, God ordains over, you know, higher powers um, to the effect of people uh, wielding the sword against those who do evil. You know, the governing authorities, the, the, the hyperacusia, they are a terror to those who do evil, but not to those who do good. God, and then he says, pay, and then says later in Romans 13, he's kind of, there's, there's a echo of the passage here in Matthew 22, when he says, render uh, to everyone what is due, tribute to whom tribute, honor to whom honor. But again, what are the norms of how we determine what people are owed? If we define the norm as people are owed what they demand by fiat, that is a giant can of worms, and that is not logically consistent, and that is not scripturally consistent. It is not theologically consistent, because the minute we declare that people are owed that which they can, they demand through fiat and coercion, that is at violence with God's moral decree, and that then brings us back into idolatry, because the only way you can justify the idea that those in government have the right to initiate force and coercion and violence to by fiat claim the property of other people the only thing that can give people that sort of status and special rights is to look at them through the lens of a, a sort of idolatry to view them as higher than, or, than ordinary people and that means that you are in some ways necessarily giving them worship giving them sacrifice, giving them loyalty, and putting them on a pedestal. That is the only way. So it, it, it is those three different things, but it all circles back to idolatry, which is why Jesus, you know, can, can you see now why the Pharisees well walked away in wonder? Because Jesus' Jesus's answer was so short and succinct, but it was so loaded with all of these truths that it just it just completely just dumbstruck them because he said give to caesars what is caesars but you better make sure you give to god what is god's which the pharisees damn well weren't doing and caesar isn't owed anything that's the point of the passage so to summarize here uh, go back to my note because I, I kind of left them. <laughs> yeah, Jesus was not prescribing we give taxes to Caesar as a moral no norm, but rather establishing that Caesar is a false god who was owed nothing, and it is God to whom all is owed, and that the people who perform services that we consent to, that God ordains should exist, they should of course be compensated. But they should be compensated by earning their positions and wages through natural competency hierarchies, which is basically capitalism, which is through the market and not through uh, um, fiat and coercion, because that is necessarily idolatrous. I mean, think about what Jesus said about being a leader, right? He said to, to be the first is to be last. And to be, if you want to be great, you must be a servant. People, the, those who are in the actual, like, again, God prescribes the what is normative for those who are uh, in every aspect of life, who are acting as his servant, who are acting in roles that he ordains over. They're to mimic Jesus's example of being a servant. Um, you know, when Jesus washed his apostles' feet. Well, let's look to Romans 13 again, right? Ministers of God for your good. And they bear the sword, yes. But here's the thing. As Christians, we should be creating governing structures that are Christian. <laughs> that doesn't mean a theocracy or, or a sort of state theonomy. You know, I think that is where, you know, theonomists go wrong. It's, it, you know, because the means matter, right? It's not about 
we will issue Christianity through fiat, but no, we issue Christianity through a Christian-like example and attitude. Godly governance is foreign to the world because let's go back to Mark 10, 42. Jesus said the Gentiles seek to brag and, and rule over each other uh, through their status and, and fighting over these positions of power. And he literally uses the word archist. They seek to be archists over one another. And it shall not be that way among you. But rather, godly governance is not about arcing. It's about serving. And when you're serving people, you don't, ha- you don't, you don't serve people and then coercively initiate force or threaten force against them if they don't pay you. Like you can't, you can't do something for somebody and then demand payment later. No, that's not that. That is a break of causality. That is a break of 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 God's moral ordinance. You have to agree to things beforehand. There has to be consent in these transactions for them to be part of what God is morally prescribing. Now, if people are you know, th- th- there could be an emphasis that I could put that, you know, how did I put it? I had it in my notes here that, um, that you know, those in the, the governing positions, like, well, they should be compensated. And, you know, we as Christians, you know, if if there are people in, in positions of governing authority, whether even if that's in today's world now where it's done through the state and or ideally we would want to move towards a more polycentric legal order, well, we should want to see those people compensated well if they're doing a good job. So this is not about the idea that I'm against people getting paid. And I want to make that clear. I think people should be paid well for for doing what God ordains. But to be, but to earn being paid well for doing what God ordains, they have to do what God ordains according to how God ordains it and how he prescribes their role. So, well, that wraps up uh, that we're about an hour here. So I think that wraps up the, uh, uh, the passage pretty well here. The, you know, the, the problem is like, like many things, the sin often falls back to idolatry, which is kind of a common theme in the Bible, I think. Um, so let me know what you guys think. Um, you know, I tried to, uh, pull from some of my own observations while also plugging uh, the Mises Institute, you know, which is also what I'm trying to do here is, you know, these aren't, some of this is my own ideas and intuitions and some of the, some of this, like in the last episode, um, these are things that I'm deriving from, you know, great resources, whether it's Stephen Rose of Anarcho-Christian or the Libertarian Christian Institute or the Mises Institute. Um, there are so many good resources out there um and then of course from god's own word i try to you know go go to there as well um and i don't know i'm just trying to <clears throat> in 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 my uh podcast in my little project here to, to 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 sort of gather these ideas and just be another voice putting uh putting all them together you know connecting the dots and 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 seeing if i can help get that message out there more and to again i want to be a megaphone for these uh you know these these giants that i uh that that i stand on the shoulders of so um uh, you know jesus being of course the 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 biggest uh, of the giants so to speak so let me know what you guys think um and if you uh um you know if there's any i don't have a plan i'm kind of like week to week kind of picking a topic i don't have a sort of you know <laughs> the future vision of every topic i'm going to cover i'm just kind of you know um doing them as they come to me but if there are uh, passages or topics that you would like to see covered um kind of in this sort of style um you know to, to see if uh, you know where we can derive and see the parallels the similarities or even the outright teaching of austrian economics or uh, sort of like, you know, the Rothbardian uh, anarcho-capitalism within the Bible. And then again, not not to perform eisegesis, but, but rather I think to just um, 
you know, show the consistency of God's moral ordinance and and the logical consistency of God's natural order. <laughs> um, if there's any topics that you want me to cover um, or you, you'd like to see uh, done more, let me know, you know, or if it's like, like I, I um, cited that Macy's article here, which again, I'll, I'll plug that in the show notes. And um, it's uh, again, the render unto Caesar and most, in, uh, most misunderstood new Testament passage by Jeff Barr. Um, if there's other articles you want me to maybe do a sort of deep dive on, you know, I'd be happy to do that as well. Um, I know sometimes our, our problem can be that people, we have, we have so many great, authors and writers in the movement um but but not everybody that we're trying to reach um can be convinced to read a long article uh granted uh, this is an hour-long podcast i i i was striving to make this shorter but it was hard but i don't know an hour is pushing it but i think an hour is still um somewhat acceptable to those who you know and, and it's always easier to listen to something than it is to read it so um but yeah let me know what you guys think if you did like it, let me know. Uh, maybe you could give the episode a like and su- subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Um, if you want to financially support the show at all, that's patreon.com slash biblical anarchy. And, uh, you know, again, even if it's just $5 a month, it just frees up my time so that I'm able to continue to uh, have the ability to try to put together content such as this. And yeah, I think that's it. I appreciate all of you for tuning in and listening. And until next time, remember, don't fear the fire.